0: Welcome to the City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Well, good morning. As, as Matt said, we're going to be in Jude Uh, There's only one chapter, so Jude verses 24 and 25. Uh, Sometimes that gets a little confusing. We're like, what exactly are we looking at? But it's Jude 24 and 25. Um, Just a few things before we get into the text this morning. Um, Again, so glad that you're here today uh, to to worship Jesus, to lift him up, and to glory in him, which is what we are talking about as we uh, go through this series in Jude. And so our values as a church are the gospel community and mission, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Jesus gave his life for us so that we could be with God forever. So he paid for our sins. Uh, he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve. And then he rose again to give us new life in him for anyone who would trust him. Uh, secondly, community is a common word of common and unity. And so we have a common unity in Christ that transcends our cultures, but doesn't do away with our cultures. That transcends our differences, but doesn't do away with our differences, but, but blends us together as this beautiful mosaic, this beautiful community of God's People call from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then mission, we believe that this good news is too good to keep to ourselves. So we let others know about what Christ has done and we live lives that are shaped by the hope of the gospel. Uh, a few announcements before we jump in. Uh, we have uh, our last week of community groups for the spring coming up this week. So your CG may be meeting this week, may not be meeting, um, but we're gonna take a couple of week break and then we're gonna jump into some men's and women's studies uh, uh, toward the, on the third week of June. So um, you should see some information about that. If you don't have our newsletter, Um, you can actually just fill out a connection card, coahforesthills.org slash connect, and just uh, mention that you wanna get the newsletter, and we'll send you our entire summer guide, everything that's going on this summer, uh, from our groups to events and things of that that nature. And then also coming up on uh, June 12th, Saturday, June 12th, we're gonna do a hike at Blue Hills. It's gonna be beautiful weather, hopefully, uh, come together, and really this summer, prioritizing building relationships together centered around Jesus. All right, so I am a, I'm a huge movie nut. Like, I love watching movies. It's one of my favorite things to do. In fact, when I was in college, one of my favorite jobs was to was working at a movie store. So I worked at a place called Movie Gallery. Um, if you don't know what a movie store is, just go uh, Google and look up uh, the last Blockbuster documentary on Netflix. It's fantastic. So if you grew up going to Blockbuster or Movie Gallery or Hollywood Videos, it is a trip in the past, it's very—it's it's an incredible documentary. But I've always loved movies, and one of my favorite movies uh, was an early '90s movie called *Groundhog Day*. And uh, *Groundhog Day* uh, starred Bill Murray playing Phil Connors, this kind of cynical TV anchor man, and. Phil Connors, Bill Murray, gets stuck on Groundhog Day. He wakes up every single day living the same day over and over and over and over again. And eventually, as he's doing this, he kind of starts to lose himself. He starts to lose his identity. He starts doing crazy things. He runs from the police. He does all sorts of things that would be very out of character for him. But there's kind of this existential tone to the movie where he's really kind of trying to figure out who he is. He's trying to figure out, is life worth living? A couple of times, he's thinking about even taking his own life because he does He doesn't doesn't actually know if it even matters. And so he is looking for purpose. And really the question is kind of going through the monotony of this every day, same day, over and over and over again is what is the point of my life? And many of us feel that same way when it feels like we wake up in the morning, we go to work, we come home, maybe we spend time with friends or family, we watch something on TV and we go to sleep. And it feels like we do the same thing over and over and over and over again. And we believe that our days are driven by what questions. They're driven by what am I gonna do for a job? What am I gonna do for dinner this evening? What am I going to do about school? What am I? What neighborhood am I going to live in? What What am I going to do with my life? We think our lives are driven by these what questions, kind of the monotonous day in, day out, but really we're all driven by why. We're driven by a why question, this overarching purpose that gives definition to every choice that we make. In fact, Simon Sinek, who's kind of this organizational guru, talks about how different companies will talk about the power of why. And he says, great companies versus good companies have a good why. And so he says, a great company will have a why. Like we make you know, functional products for everyday people. And so every decision is driven through that why. But even companies who talk about what they do are driven by a why. So a lot of companies are driven by, we want to make money. And if the bottom line is what is the factor in every single decision, it might lead a company to maybe use parts that aren't quite up to snuff. Maybe they make business decisions that are more about money instead of caring for their employees. They they may not be driven by a good why, but they are driven by a why nonetheless. And then in the same way, every single one of us is driven by the question why, why do we exist? And even if you don't know it, you may be driven by a bad way going back. Just like companies, we can be driven by the desire to make money. If our entire lives are wrapped up in making money, then every decision is gonna be based out of how much money we can make. So where we choose to live, what we choose to do, the priorities that we have, all of these things may be driven by money. It's the same with success. If success is our why, is the driving principle in our lives, then we will put family and friends in the back seat if it means pursuing our goals. Even something like being happy is not a great why because then every decision is simply based around our personal happiness. So there's never a call for sacrifice. There's never a call for us to do something for the sake of other people. If solely our why is to just be happy, But I actually believe that that the Christian faith answers the question, why, better than any other. And it actually comes from looking away from ourselves and understanding that we find our greatest joy, our greatest happiness in the glory of God. This series, Doxa, has been about the glory of God as Jude writes this letter to this unknown church. And when we think about the glory of God, it is uniquely tied to our joy and happiness. The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, this is from our Presbyterian friends. We love them, thankful for our Presbyterian friends for this. Uh, they said, the chief end of man, in other words, our why, our purpose, the reason we're on earth is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The reason that we are created, our why, this means that we exist for the glory of God. And as we give God maximum glory, we receive maximum joy. These two things are interlinked. They are tied at the hip. And as we close this doxa series, uh, we're going to close it with a doxology. The word doxology uh, is, is a compound word. It's two Greek words put together. The words doxa and logos. The word doxa means glory, as we've talked about. And the word logos, which means word. So literally, it's being closed with a word of glory. It is being closed with a word of praise, letting God know how glorious he is and rejoicing in it see, the more clearly that we see God's glory, the more clearly we see who he is and what he's done, the only proper response for us is to give him glory from joyful hearts. And as we see this, God is continually revealing his glory to all creation, and as Habakkuk says, that his glory would fill the entire earth. That means that God's glory needs to consume our entire lives. And so as we see this, what we see is that the glory of God is something that never gets old. you probably heard the phrase that you can, you, you can never have too much of a good thing. Well, if you've ever eaten too much ice cream, you know you can have too much of a good thing. It doesn't work that way with God. We will never get too much of God's glory. And we, as we live lives that gaze and ponder the glory of God, it, what happens is we burst out into doxology, We we burst out into worship, whereas Tony Evans says there's an eruption in our souls that leads to joy. And so as we unpack this today, we're looking at that our entire lives, our joy is wrapped up in God's glory. And we see this firstly from the fact that your life is God's work. Your life is God's Word. And so Jude ends his letter with a doxology. This is kind of rare in the New Testament. Sometimes there were there are different doxologies and, and words of praise at points in letters in the New Testament, but very rarely is it the final word of the letter. Oftentimes there will be a doxology and then some personal instructions, but here Jude lands on this doxology, recognizing God's work in the life of the believer. He says here, to him who is able to keep you From stumbling. That word able is not talking about God's, you know, whether God's going to do it or not, like, could God do this? But this word really is related to the power of God. That God alone is capable to keep us. This word keep has been really key to us understanding the, the letter of Jude. Um, and back, all the way back in verse 1, uh, we see it is God who kept us for Jesus Christ. Last week, we unpacked the idea that we keep ourselves in the love of God. And then here in verse 24, that it is God who keeps us from stumbling. What's being said here is it's kind of this bracket around the idea that you keep yourself in the love of God is that the only way to be saved, the only way to stay saved, the only way to not fall away from God is to trust the God who keeps you. I'm really influenced by John Piper. John Piper is one of my heroes in the faith. An incredible pastor, served as a pastor for over 40 years in, in uh, at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he retired about five years ago. And at one of his last conferences, John Piper said something that really kind of kind of stirred me up. He said, "He said after all these years, he said after you know 60 years in the faith, 40 years in the ministry, he said it surprises me that I'm still a Christian." Now I'm like, wait a minute, like this, this kind of floored me for a second. I like, well, what do you mean that it surprises you that you're still a Christian? And he said this, he said, I have no doubt about this. If the decisive cause of my faithfulness to Christ is any of those expressions that must come from me, it will not come because it's not there. He, he's not saying that God is not worthy of following me. He's not saying that he's gonna get bored of God someday that he's surprised he made it all the way through, but he understands that he is not capable of being faithful to God, that he is not capable of keeping himself from stumbling. The word stumbling here doesn't mean to not sin. We're going to sin until the day that God takes us home. We are going to struggle with the presence of sin in our life, even mature Christians sin. The word stumbling here means leaving the faith turning from Christ. And there's this plea, these pleas throughout the Psalms for God to be near to those who follow him, him, to help them follow. It says, for example, in Psalm 56, verse uh, verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. We keep ourselves in the love of God by pleading to him, believing that he will keep us because we know that we love sin too much. We know how weak we are. We know that we tend to wander away. We know that we need Jesus to see us through. And the promise we see here is that he will not let us go. Or it's like the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it for Thy courts above. I need You, Lord, to keep me. We, every single one of us, is, there's not a one of us who is capable of keeping ourselves near God, keeping ourselves faithful enough to God. God is the one who, who takes us and keeps us from Stumbling. We can entrust ourselves to God who will keep us when our faith is weak, who will keep us when our hearts are cold, who will keep us when all the chips seem to be down, and we can trust that he will revive us again. So, it says here that we, we now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That word present uh, present literally means to make your stand. It's the visual of standing before a judge. And so you kind of see the play on words here that God can keep you from stumbling and he's the one that will help you stand before him. And the vision here is this standing before God, as all of us will do one day, that we will give an account of our lives to the God that we owe our lives to. This picture of Judgment Day, and here it says that God will present us or help us to stand blameless before Him. In other words, we'll stand before Him without flaw. As you can, so imagine yourself right now standing before God. Now, there's probably two visuals that pop into your head, right? As I said, even if you have good theology, it, you probably think of one of two things. You probably think like old man with a beard, very kindly, not real, not real threatening, or you maybe think the Wizard of Oz. Those are probably the two visuals. One of those popped into your head. Even if you're not a Christian, one of these two probably popped into your head. Now, I think a lot of us tend to think of Wizard of Oz. We tend to think of this, this imposing figure, and, I, and I, when we stand before God and all of His holiness, all of His grandeur, we see this in Isaiah six, where Isaiah, the holiest, most blameless guy in all of Israel, felt like he was being torn apart from the inside. So I think we can imagine that. So we don't imagine standing before God; we imagine cowering before God. Because what we understand is that we're honest with ourselves; we know we're not blameless. We, we know what we've done. We know that we can't say we are without flaw. And this is actually one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm sharing the gospel with people. Whenever we do a member interview, I ask this question, is if you were standing before God right now, why would he let you into his presence? And the answer I often get, even for, I think sometimes from people who are genuinely Christians, is, and, and we, we get this mixed up, is you know honestly, I've, I think I've, I, I don't know. Some people would say, you know what, I've done more good than bad, but what is the requirement that's laid out here in the text? To be blameless. What's the text telling us? It's telling us that you need to be blameless, but also that you can be blameless. How does this happen? Because Jesus is the one who presents us as blameless. Because Jesus is the one who took Our place, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, often in that verse, we we focus on Jesus becoming our sin. And we should because our sin was put on Jesus on the cross and we cannot get away from that. That is our sin that put him there. Our sin is on him. He bore that for us. But the other side of this is that that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the word righteousness literally means right standing. So that we stand before God as blameless, not with our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And the book of Isaiah says that we are standing clothed in that righteousness. This means that one day when you stand before God and you give a defense for your life, if you trusted Jesus, you can say these words that my confidence is not in me but it's in what Christ has done for me. I stand blameless because Jesus took my place. We realize this is our, the, our only means and our only hope, and the result of this is what? We see here that we stand before him in his presence with great joy, not with cowering, but with joy. We stand here, it's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm finally here, I finally get to see what all my hope has been in. But not just the, the result of our joy, but also the reason for our joy. So I want, I want you to visualize right now the, the best gift you've ever gotten in your life. Think about the absolute best gift you have ever had. Now, the proper way to, to enjoy a gift is you unwrap that gift and you look at it. And, and at first, your joy is in that gift. You're so excited for that Ninja Turtle bus when you were eight, or what you know, a Nintendo, whatever it might've been, a PlayStation, whatever it might be, I don't want some of you to, to you, know, you know, whatever. Uh, whatever it might be, you get so excited in the gift. But the proper response would then be to move from the gift to the giver, right? Because all of a sudden you've enjoyed, I cannot believe that you got me this gift. And then you think, man, my mom or my dad or my husband or my, whoever is, gave me this gift. And it means so much that they would think of me like this. It's the same way with the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive, which is the forgiveness of our sin, which would allow us to stand before a holy God. And this is why this type of joy, as Tim Keller tells us, allows us to not have a shred of pride or self-importance because our joy is in God. But also this joy is a two-way street. It's not just us finding joy in God, but God finds joy in us. Now, that may seem odd to you to think that God finds joy in you, but he does. Zephaniah 3.17 says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to sing over you, you would not call that a joyful noise. I would imagine that God singing is probably the greatest voice you've ever heard. See, every other religion... Honestly, the gods don't really like you. If you've ever really looked into them, they don't like you. They're, they're either If you look back at particularly at pagan religions, they were disinterested in you. They didn't really care about you until they got angry at you. They didn't care about you until they wanted to use you. They don't care about you until you do enough in order to prove yourself to them. But Christianity says that God not just likes you, but he loves you and he wants you and he didn't expect you to come to him, he came to you and did everything necessary through Christ to help you stand before him that you can enjoy this joy for, for eternity. It's almost like the kids coming home from college and saying, you're finally home. So we express doxology because of God's work in us, but also our entire lives are to be for the glory of God. Your life is for God's glory. The point of this life is his glory. Our doxology is to be embodied in the way that we live, in the words that we use in our actions and our intentions to proclaim how good God is. And the content of that life matters. We see this in verse 25, that we have to properly attribute who God is and what he has done. We can't just form a God of our own making. We have to love God and and proclaim him as the Bible tells us he is. We see in verse 25 that, that to the only God, that there is no other that there is no other God and that our lives need to declare that there is no one but our God. You need to understand how rare that was. So if you look back at the first commandment talking about how there, there is only one God, this is super rare. In the ancient world, it was a polytheistic world and a pantheistic world. Polytheistic meaning poly, meaning many, pantheistic meaning all. And so There were gods everywhere, there were regional gods, there were gods of nature, gods of this, gods of that. Everyone kind of had their own God. And it was pantheistic, so God was kind of in everything. Everything had some little piece of the divine. Well, the Christian worldview is so different because we're saying there is one God who's not just like us, he's actually over us. He's other, he's completely different than us. So much so that the early Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in all these other gods. We praise God alone in his aloneness and in his uniqueness. Our God alone is Savior and Lord. The idea that God is a Savior is really key to understanding the Bible. If you go all the the way back to Genesis in the account where Adam and Eve fell at the very beginning, God promises a Savior would come and then actually provides for them and covers them in their newly discovered nakedness before they go out into the harsh world. He rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and brings them to the promised land. He rescues them through exile with this promise to come that in Jesus there would be a savior so that through Jesus Christ, the only source of mercy, the only way to forgiveness, the only hope, we would give him our glory as our worthy Lord. And this is an invitation. Not, this isn't just a proclamation. It's an invitation to see how good God is. One thing the pandemic did is it helped me discover I actually like to cook. Uh, I really enjoy it. And so you may have heard about my spaghetti sauce. I love spaghetti sauce. My goal is to have everyone in our church over at some point now that the pandemic is over to enjoy spaghetti. And I, I love it. It's like a seven hour process, it starts with four pounds of Italian sausage in a pot. Amen. And then you start putting onions in and you start putting the garlic and the tomatoes and all that. And as it starts to simmer, you start to smell it. Someone walks in the house and says, oh, that smells good. I'm like, you can't taste it yet. The acidity hasn't broken. Uh, I get mad at my wife because she's stealing it. I'm like, no, no, it's not ready. You got to let like, it get ready. But when it's almost ready, you start inviting people over. We had some friends in town this weekend. And I said, hey, why don't you come take a taste of this? And just watching the joy on their face as they tasted it. Now, I didn't invite them to taste it because I didn't think it was going to be good. I invited them to taste it because I knew it was going to be good. And in the same way, God invites us to taste and see that he is good. Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. As we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord alone, we continually get to see how good he is. But the more you look to Christ, the more you see that he alone is worthy And so how do we live lives that give God glory? How do we live this life? Well, we need to practice giving God glory. Now, if you remember Allen Iverson, he said, practice. Man, we're talking about practice. An former NBA basketball player. And maybe Allen Iverson did not need to practice. It may also be why he never won an NBA championship. That's another story. But NBA basketball players, you often hear them talk about getting to their spot. And so they have a couple of spots on the court that they know exactly how many dribbles to get to. They know how, what they need to do to get to that place. They know the rhythm that they need to get into to make that shot. And they have shot that shot thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. In the same way, we need to practice the presence and, and praise of God because life is a dress rehearsal for an eternity of doing so. And so Jude is telling us that these things that we say belong to God is glory, majesty, dominion, authority, that we need to practice praising God with these things. This is a, our doxology is a practice of doing so. And so the first way that we practice this is dwelling on it, thinking about it, turning our minds toward who God is and what he has done. When you think about your, what you think about during the day, how much time do you spend thinking about God? How much time do you spend thinking about his glory, his majesty, his dominion, his authority over all things? His glory is, is his reputation, it's is his honor. To him be recognition of who he truly is as our Lord and Savior. His majesty, the honor that he is due because of his name because of his kingly role in our lives. You know, if you've ever watched a king or a queen, they just carry themselves with a certain air, right? You ever watch, uh, watch a king or a queen walk into a room, everybody stops and turns because of the majesty with which they carry themselves with. We have a king. Do We think about God as our king, his dominion and authority, that we have a God who's sovereign and in control of all things. He is powerful over everything. And so when we say, to the only God be these things, we are thinking on and dwelling on this in our lives. But we don't just think about it. It doesn't just stay internal. We, we talk about it. So secondly, to practice this is we ascribe these things to God. Practicing means ascribing to God his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So when it says to him, it doesn't just mean it's something, it doesn't mean this is something he doesn't have. We're not saying that we give this to God as a gift. So imagine that I'm watching Tom Brady throw a football. And I say, hey, Tom, because we're on a first name basis, "Um, you're really good at this. You're really good at throwing a football. It's not like in that moment, all of a sudden, Tom Brady just gains the ability to throw a football. I'm recognizing what he's already good at. God doesn't gain these things because we tell him that they're so. We're recognizing that they're so. You alone are worthy of glory, of our honor and reverence. You alone are worthy of majesty, the rule in our life as a good king. You alone have dominion and authority. So all things you really are in control of, and there's nothing that you cannot do. So we ascribe these things to God. So we so we dwell on these things, we ascribe them to God, but we also reflect on these things. We reflect on the the question of are these things being bared out in my life? Do I really live like God's glory is at stake? Do I live like he is the supreme one in my life who I will give honor and reverence and and do? Do do I live like God gets a say on everything in my life, that he truly is my king? Am Am I trusting him, following him as king? Am I really believing that he's in control of everything or am I like a kid riding a bike who my mom or dad tells me, don't put your feet down, trust me, I keep putting my feet down? We need to reflect on these things and then begin to reframe them. See, what happens is if we dwell upon the glory of God, we ascribe glory to God, we begin to think and see the shortcomings in our own lives. It begins to shape our hearts. It begins to shape our, our, the way we react to things and our desires. We begin saying, you know what, I'm not gonna do this because you know what, this doesn't give God glory. I'm I'm not going to do this because I want to trust God. I'm going to trust God with the circumstances that I'm in. I'm not going to complain because I know that he loves me and he wants best for me. And this is what we do when we come together and gather for worship. We We are looking to God. We're thinking about him. We're ascribing when we sing a song about it. We're ascribing to God his glory and his majesty, his dominion, his authority. And then we're also saying, Lord, change and shape us. When we pray, when we come to the word, we should be doing these things and say, Lord, shape us and change us. And so when does God get these things? Here it tells us that he has these things before all time, now and forever. Amen. That he always has been glorious and he always will be. The before all time, that the uncreated God, these are just part of who he is. And so as we wrap up, what does this mean for our lives? The first thing we we see is that God's glory, majesty, dominion, and authority should be the highest priority in our lives. That last word, amen, we often think of amen as kind of like a formal ending to a prayer. It's like when you get off the phone and you say goodbye to someone. It's like, okay, amen, goodbye. Like that's kind of what we think of when we think of that word, but it literally means your will be done. It's almost like Jude is capping this by saying, yes, Lord. All of this, let's go, let's be about this. My life will be about this. When we say amen, what we're saying is, Lord, all of these things are yours, therefore I am yours. I trust that you will get glory and if you get glory, I'm gonna get joy. I trust that your promises are true and that I'm gonna receive these forever and that if your glory goes on forever, so does my joy. See, amen is a missionary cry. And what propels missions, and this past week we were really excited to start sending out some mission money that we were able to look at the end of our budget. We're like, thank you, Lord, for doing this. Missions is propelled by seeing the glory of God. And if you look at every great missionary movement in the history of the world, they came down to people seeing the glory of God. And why do we go on missions? So people see the glory of God. Our vision for every person from every culture to experience the gospel is driven by the glory of God so people see the glory of God. And then secondly, every other purpose has to serve the first. It means all of our thoughts, plans, desires have to be checked at the door of God's glory. Does this point to the glory, majesty, dominion and power of God? And if it doesn't, something needs to change. So to close, a couple of questions. Who's getting glory in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, what's the next step you need to take in living a God-glorifying life? And if you've not yet trusted Christ, we pray that you would trust God alone. You would see that he alone is the one who can save you from your sins and that you would give your life to him today. Let's pray.